evening and turning to First uh, Peter. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. You're looking at verses one through six. Perhaps you've uh, seen uh, pictures or uh, things uh, in on TV or someplace in a magazine about uh, those who uh, can take a chainsaw and sculpt animals and so forth. Um, give a guy like this a block of wood, and in short order, he'll carve an animal with his chainsaw. Well, that's a kind of an amazing thing. I don't know if any of you have tried that before. Some of you guys are chainsaw experts, I know. Uh, but uh, we have a master sculptor who is God, and he's at work in our lives. And uh, we may think that he always uses small, delicate instruments, but sometimes he needs to use a chainsaw. Um, or it seems to us in our pain, in our anguish, in our suffering, but uh, we need not fear, for God has a pattern in mind for us, each one of us, and he's shaping us to that design. So how does God shape us to be Christ-like? Well, we've been talking about the subject of suffering. We talked about the Lord's suffering as he uh, died for us and he suffered for us. But sometimes he uses suffering to mold us or to sculpt us into what he wants us to be. And so let's look at tonight what it means to be Christ-like. And there are some things that uh, we see here in chapter 4, verse, beginning in verse 1. First of all, we see the armor. The armor. Uh, in verse 1, uh, it says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for that he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Uh, you notice there that phrase, arm yourselves. Uh, it's a military term, very similar to Ephesians chapter 6, where we're to put on the whole armor of, of, of God. Uh, where it's a, there is defensive, most of it is defensive armor, but there is the offensive weapon as well, the Word of God. And so uh, it's very similar to that. Um, but what is the armor of God that he talks about here? Well, the first one is, our armament is the mind of Christ. Notice, he says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. This speaks of an attitude or an intent, a purpose. 
Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, it speaks of putting in your mind, in your thinking, in your will, uh, the mind of Christ. Of course, uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is the intent of your heart? What is the purpose? What is that which is your attitude concerning the mind of Christ? Well, this is baseball season, almost wrapping it up, I guess. They're in their playoffs. Some of you wouldn't care, couldn't care less about baseball and most of it's pretty, uh, they only had a 60-game uh, season, and now they're in the playoffs. And, and uh, so, But I have a baseball illustration. There was a little boy who was overheard talking to himself as he strutted to, through the backyard with his uh, bat and his ball, and he was heard to say, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he would toss up the ball in the air and he would swing and miss. Strike one. He picked up the ball, threw it up in the air and said to himself, I'm the greatest baseball hitter in the world. Swung at the ball again. Strike two. He paused a moment to examine his bat. And then he looked at the ball very carefully. And then a third time he threw the ball up into the air and says, I'm the greatest hitter who ever lived. And he swung the bat a third time, and missed again. Wow, strike three. What a pitcher. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Well, that's an attitude, right? <laughs> uh, that's kind of what little boys often do. Sometimes, though, the attitude comes as a result of some real suffering. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Viktor Frankl. He was a courageous Jew who became a prisoner during the Holocaust during the years of his indignity and humiliation by the Nazis before he was finally set free. And at the beginning of his ordeal, he was marched into a Gestapo courtroom. His captors had taken his home, his family, his freedom, his possessions, even his watch and his wedding ring. It shaved his head, stripped his clothing off of his body, and there he stood before the German high command under the glaring lights, being interrogated, falsely accused. He was destitute, he was helpless, a pawn in the hands of the brutal, prejudiced, sadistic men. He had nothing. But no, that's not true. He suddenly realized there was one thing no one could ever take from him. Just one. You know what it was? He realized he still had the power to choose his own attitude. No matter what anyone could ever do to him, regardless of what the future held for him, the attitude choice was his to make. I don't know if this man was a Christian or not but he had a good attitude. Bitterness or forgiveness? To give up 
or to go on? Hatred or hope? Determination to endure or paralysis of self-pity? Attitude. So the first thing to arm yourself with is the same mind. With the same mind. Uh, the mind of Christ. A second piece of armor is the mastery of Christ. It says in the last part of verse 1, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Temptation has lost its appeal and power to such a person. Ceased means to stop, to quit. Now, some temptations completely lose their power over us. You know, if some temptations have not lost their power, then we do not have the mind or the intention of Christ in that particular area. Someone has said, sin in the believer is a burden which afflicts him rather than a pleasure which delights him. In Colossians 3 and verse 5, it says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Someone else wrote, Not to realize you are in conflict means only one thing. It's that you are so hope, hopelessly defeated, you do not even know it. it. means that you are completely defeated by the devil. Anyone who's not aware of a fight or a conflict in a spiritual sense is in a drugged, haphazard, uh, or hazardous condition. It reminds us of the hymn that says, I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. So, do you face temptations? Well, we all face temptations. But to follow Jesus and uh, desire intently to have his mind in us and let him... Have be the master of our, our lives. So that's the armor. Secondly, we notice here in verse 2, the activity. Two things in this verse, two responses in verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. There's two things here. First of all, in, there's the positive response of no longer. You say, that sounds negative. Yes, but it really is going in the right direction. And that's a good thing. That's positive. To no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh to the lust of men. And then the second response is the positive response from now on. Or as the, our passage says, but to... But to what? But to the will of God. So there's two responses there. No longer living the rest of our time in the lust of, the, of, of men, but to the will of God. It's a shift from no longer to from now on, but to also in the right direction. You see, sin violates the will of God. But Jesus is our example. John 4.34, Jesus saith unto them, 
My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. John 5.30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. John 6.38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Luke 22.42, Saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Here's another baseball illustration. I know you don't care about baseball, right? But some of you old guys remember a fellow by the name of Oral Hershiser. Well, maybe not. He didn't follow the Dodgers. But Oral Hershiser was a great pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers back when I was much younger. And he wrote a book entitled Out of the Blue. Now, he claimed to be a Christian. I don't know if he was or not, but his, his, uh, maybe you've heard of his manager at the time was Tommy Lasorda. Okay, that name's probably familiar. Uh, well, he would say, Oral Hershiser would say that uh, Tommy uh, changed his life. He called Hershiser into the office and he uh, said this. He said, you don't believe in yourself. In fact, he probably didn't say it that calmly. He said, uh, you're scared to pitch in the big leagues. Who do you think these hitters are? Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth is dead. You've got good stuff, and if you didn't, I wouldn't have hired you. Lasorda continued, I've seen guys come and go, but you've got it. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to be a bulldog out there. Well, that's kind of his nickname became Bulldog. With that name, you'll scare the batters to death. So starting today, I want you to believe that you're the best pitcher in baseball. Look at that hitter and say, there's no way you're going to get a hit on me. Two days later, Oral pitched a relief, and in three innings, he gave up one run. And Lasorda's talk, which Oral Hershiser called the Sermon on the Mound, had worked. It got him motivated. Well, again, it's a kind of a, it's an illustration, but I think sometimes we kind of think, well, we kind of live a defeated life. We say, I, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I, I can't get over these temptations. I can't get over this, this thing that, that's really hindering my life. And yet, it goes back to that attitude again. Uh, the activity for following Christ goes back to the armament we have. You have that mind of Christ? You know that the Christ is your master? Do you determine no longer, but from now on? You see? I think that's uh, where we have to uh, take a look and evaluate our lives. That brings us thirdly to the abominable. And that's not a snowman, okay? The abominable. In verse 3 and 4, it says, For the time past of your life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. 
wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Notice, first of all, here the sufficiency of the past. He says, when we walked, that's past tense, we walked in lasciviousness. All these sins are unbridled, lustful excesses. We read in 2 Peter 2.7, Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. 2 Corinthians 12.21, Have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So the word is used to describe the spirit which knows no restraint. The spirit which dares to sin, any sin, unbridled, unrestrained. In fact, the word is debauchery, and that word meant an excess, uh, uh, excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure. And then there's the list there. Lust means evil desire. I'm driven by an animal instinct, driven by passion. It's a mindless indulgence in pleasures and passions. Excess of wine, that's simply drunkenness. Revelings, that's carousing, usually associated with the worship of false gods. The cults of the ancient time uh, liked to worship Dionysius and Bacchus, of those uh, gods that, that uh, they would worship. There was banqueting, that's simply a drinking party. Um, and in light of these words, it seems... Strange to find that, you know, sometimes Christians, even so-called Christians, think, well, I've got liberty. I can drink. I can carouse. I can do that. I have liberty. The Greeks actually carried lust and drunkenness into their religious observances. There was the goddess Aphrodite, for instance. And then it ends up with abominable idolatries. And so all idolatry, worship of idols, is abominable and should not be allowed in our lives, and particularly those associated with this drinking and this licentiousness. So there's the, it says, in time past, our life may suffice us. Well, that brings us to the surprises of the present. Again, here it says, in verse 4, wherein they think it's strange. Who's they? Well, it's the world around us. They're surprised that you don't run with them. What? You don't want to go to a drinking party? Uh, you don't want to go carousing? Boy, we're going to have some fun tonight. And they think it's strange if you say, no, I don't do those things. And they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess, and they malign you. There's the totality of their surprise. Here's the idea uh, that they all think it's strange. They're all surprised. So in a lovely poem, which went like this, but the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of the soul and change. That's the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. There's the traffic of their surprise. It says they, that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot. And then the tarnishing of their surprise. They speak evil of you. They malign you. Think of you know, the 
idea that people are thinking, when, when am I going to... Has anybody here earned your first million yet? I might have, but I don't know where it's at. <laughs> I think I paid most of it back to the government. But uh, we have millionaires today, and one of them in particular, you'll recognize him, Bill Gates. He said this, just in terms of allocation of time, time resource, religion is not very efficient. He said, there's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. Well, I'm afraid there's a, uh, we may not have some millionaire Christians, but there's some Christians that seem to think the same thing. I could be doing a lot more of something else on Sunday morning than being in my place in the local church. How many Christians chase after the things of the world? We should have a desire. We should have the intention of being Christ-like. The things of the world should not hold a, an attraction to us. That brings us to the accounting, verse 5. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? First of all, there's the giving of the account. Who shall give account to him? Of course, speaking of non-Christians, those who are going to malign you and wonder why you don't run with them, that phrase, shall give account, means to pay back. They're going to be paid back. In fact, people who do that, who live like that, and cast aspersions on Christians and malign believers are actually piling up a debt. They're piling it up that God will spend all eternity paying it back. And the verb here is a bookkeeping term. God has it in his books. They're going to pay. Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And then there's the receiving of the account. In verse 5, it says that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Who's the judge? Christ, the one they have been blaspheming. I don't know. Again, here's a, not a baseball illustration, okay? But uh, how many remember the uh, commercial? Ring around the collar. Ring around the collar, or something like that, you know. Well, sometimes wives feel resentment when it's assumed that they are responsible for everything that goes wrong at the house, okay? But this commercial, the husband gets upset because there's a ring around the collar. And so the wife breaks into tears because her detergent is not removed the dirt from her husband's shirt. The ring around the collar is seen as a telltale evidence of her failure. The problem is the ad never asks an obvious question. Why didn't he wash his neck? Well, we realize there will be a judgment. Our suffering for Christ in the ridicule of our attempts to be Christ-like need to be evaluated in light of that judgment. And we will be rewarded. And they shall receive the reward of their, for their evil deeds. And then lastly, the aim. Verse 6. For, 
For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But live according to God in the Spirit. The aim is the will of God. Live according to God. That's, that's living according to God's will. In our purpose, it's also in the preaching. And those who have died in the Lord, they have been judged by men, but will be, uh, be judged by God. That's a very simple but very profound verse. For the gospel has been preached means a saving message of Jesus Christ. And even to those who are dead simply means those who are now dead. I think he has in mind some believers who heard the gospel and are now dead. Some of them perhaps were martyred. Maybe some in association of those to whom this letter was sent, who died for their faith. Well, it's been said, the reason most major goals are not achieved is that we spend our time doing second things first. The reason most major goals are not re achieved is that we spend our time doing second things first. Some years ago, the headline told the, of 300 whales that suddenly died. The whales were pursuing sardines, and they found themselves marooned in a bay. A comment was made, the small fish lured the sea giants to their death. They came to a violent demise by chasing small ends, by prostituting vast powers for insignificant goals. And how many times are the small fish luring us as believers away from the, the significant goals that God would have for us. I think that's what Peter is trying to con uh, convey to us. Intentional Christ-likeness. Let's pray.